0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We live in the great Northwest, and, and that is the issue of drug use and the Christian worldview. Now, I don't know why they gave this one to me, but, um, no, actually I do. Um, for those of you who don't know, I got saved out of the drug culture. I mean, that was a, a part of my world growing up. I, I uh, was raised in Cave Junction, and if you're familiar with the area at all, uh, Cave Junction has a specific reputation uh, for being one of the greenest parts of the Green State. And um, the first time I smoked weed was in the third grade. Uh, we stole some weed from uh, my my good friend Tony de Herrera, his, his older brother. Had an eighth of of uh, green bud, and we stole that and smoked that in the eighth grade or in the third grade. Uh, by the time I was in the sixth grade, that was just a pretty consistent, regular thing. Um, and then by the time I was in high school, of course, I graduated to um, uh, some harder drugs and and some things that were, uh, no doubt, detrimental to my health over the long course of my life. Um, and so. I, Tonight, as I'm sharing, I want you to understand that I don't share from a place of, like, theory, right? I don't. I haven't lived my life in an ivory tower where I've lived sort of this moral Christian thing in this bubble where I, I don't actually ever touch people who struggle with these things or deal with these things. Um, I, I'm speaking to you tonight from the heart of somebody who has walked through some of these struggles and trials personally, who has seen firsthand and experienced firsthand um, the difficulty that comes with uh, drug use. Now, before we get started, I should let you know a couple of things um, uh, about just this facility. You guys are here as my guests because I'm the youth pastor and this is my space. Although you guys are, I know, slowly creeping in. Um <laughs> Uh, right behind these doors here are bathrooms in the hallway. If you need to use the restroom, please feel free to, to make your way through the doors and you can find the restrooms there. Um, and don't feel bad. I, I know everybody worries about, like, interrupting. I want you to treat this place kind of like home, like it's casual here. We're going to have some good discussion tonight, hopefully. And, and I hope I, I'll be able to equip you with a, a solid grid for understanding... Um, the heart of God for His people. So, uh, with that said, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the Book of First Corinthians, and we're going to take we're going to specifically be in 1 um, Corinthians chapter eight and nine. But it's going to be a while before we get there, okay? Because I want to set the stage, and I'd like to um, kind of talk through some things in advance of that. Father, as we open up your word, um, it's really easy for us to get caught up in the philosophies of, uh, of just the world, and, and even in Christendom, or even in uh, the world of Christianity, a lot of times we say things, but we don't define what they mean. Uh, we talk about issues in a philosophical way, but we're detached from the reality of how they really impact life. And so I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us ears that are attentive to your voice, sharp minds that are ready to receive the word of God, the implanted truth that is able to protect and defend us and shape the way that we live. God, would you oversee our time together in your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. There he sat, pen in hand, thinking about this city, this city that he absolutely loves. I mean, having lived there and worked there for two years, he knew that the issues of that place were pretty complex. I mean, the city itself was a, it was a major port. It was a, it was a place where ships would kind of come in and go out. And as a result of that, almost all trade for that region went through that city. It was very similar to Portland or maybe like uh, San Francisco or L.A. or, or maybe even New York. A metropolitan area. A center for trade. Now this makes a city, this particular city, a place where Culture is really being jumbled together and is really um, being mixed in some pretty profound ways. There are people from every class, every religion, every nationality that are represented in this place. And as a place where the moral standards for living are constantly being tested by varied cultures, it's really hard to find your footing morally. It's really hard to find your footing morally in a place like that. Why? Because w- whenever you, th- you think, well, this is good or this is bad, then somebody comes from a different culture or a different understanding of the world and they, they look at the same issue and they see it totally different. And it can lead to this sort of tension in an environment where, where it feels like nothing is really true anymore. Where it feels like, because of the influence and the mix of cultures that maybe there really is no objective final truth. And as a place where um, words like diversity and tolerance come up often, this was a confusing place for a church to exist. You know, in the same city block where there was abject abject poverty, you could walk just a few blocks down the road and and you would see in that time from one city block where there's poverty to a few city blocks down the road, intense wealth, lavish lifestyles, and every form of vice that you could possibly imagine. Vice is commonplace. You have every form of, of, of sexual variance, You have the pursuit of position and power in the corporate world and a deep love for the kind of pleasures that living near a port city with access to the rest of the world can bring in. All the pleasures from every culture converge in one place. Every vice that you can imagine is in this one city and it's with this kind of scenario and it's with a pastoral heart a pastoral heart Paul now sits down to pen his letter to the Corinthian church this is the kind of place where even the most morally upright person will be challenged in living out their faith so Paul sits down to write this letter to this small church that he planted while he was living in Corinth for two years. He was working in the outdoor industry, something similar to maybe REI, right? He's a tent maker, making it possible for people to camp out or travel or do the things that they love to do, either for a living situation or for leisure. And while he's... Living in this place and working in this place, he is sharing the gospel, and God, by his grace, birthed a small church there. Now, if there's anything that's going to disrupt this small church in the mind of Paul, this church that he planted, it's going to be the liberal environment of Corinth. The issues in that place are almost overwhelming. With a small prayer and an open heart, he sets pen to paper, and begins to write all that is in his heart to these people that he loves. He begins to deal with the issues, the way in which culture was affecting the church. So, for starters, he launches off in the in, in the first part of First Corinthians, and 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 he says here that um, guys, this worldly philosophy has. has has amalgamated with the church. You guys are into the idolatry of of um, celebrity pastors and celebrity status. This idolatry of celebrity status had crept into the church, and the people spent their times bragging about who was their favorite teacher. They said, "Oh yeah, well, who do you listen to?" Oh i'm totally a, a paul fan oh, oh really that's interesting um who, who do you listen to well i'm of apollos they'd say oh, okay what what about you well i, I know paul and apollos so you get those guys are nice but you know i'm just kind of a jesus guy oh, Amen. and they're trying to one-up one one another over who is the best leader right and they identify with what they think is the best and they think if i identify with the best then i am a part of the best the best somehow i share in that and paul just calls it out He, he, he rebukes the church there and he says in really essentially in paul's estimation you're more likely to hear the name peter or paul or apollos than the name of the one who actually died For their sins. And he rebukes them in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 1 to to talk about Christianity and and say, guys, Christianity is not a philosophy. it's, It's a person. It's about a person. He deals with the fact that Greek cultural, the Greek cultural practice of turning everything into a philosophical venture that only affects the mind. Um he, 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 start, he starts by rebuking that idea. And he says, listen, this is not a Gnostic understanding. We don't live according to just knowledge alone, that we're, we're just sort of gathering information and collecting the best teachers and collecting the best information and going, okay, now because I know stuff, I am stuff. It doesn't work like that, right? So this concept had crept into the church and was affecting the focus of the congregation. So Paul addresses it by saying, listen, when I came to you guys, I didn't come to you, you know, um, with, with fancy words and philosophical stuff. I came to you preaching the simplicity of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And to the rest of the world, that's not going to make any sense. It's gonna sound like fantastical, mystical. Okay, so you believe some guy in some region and some part of the world lived and died and went raised again, launched up into heaven, is now living there and is gonna come back. That's that's your belief system. It's not gonna fit with man's wisdom. There's something supernatural that took place that is beyond conventional wisdom, okay? And we can't base our Christianity on that. He goes on, point by point, he just begins to knock down these worldly philosophies that that have penetrated the church. So in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, the church exalts Christ, not his messengers. Again in 1 Corinthians 1, the church follows a person, not a philosophy. 1 Corinthians 3, the church and divisions, he addresses those things. 1 Corinthians 5, the church and sexual ethics. He addresses those complications, those problems. 1 Corinthians 6, the church and lawsuits. 1 Corinthians 7, the church and principles for marriage, remarriage and singleness. 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, the church use how the church uses freedoms responsibly. In 10 and 11, the church and cultural issues like should a woman have to wear a head covering? Or is it okay um, that that some people have certain traditions? And then he goes on in eleven and eleven through fourteen to address the church and its health talking about how all the members of the body should be thriving and contributing. And then he goes on to talk about the church and its future and the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 16, he finally addresses the church and its care for one another. He is all about creating a healthy church. You see this? He is living in a time and in a place that is not unlike our own. Do you see the parallels? The, the issues he's addressing are the issues that we're addressing today. It's the same exact stuff. celebrity pastor worship. How many of you people or me people, I should say me people too. How many of you people identify a Christian and his philosophy of Christianity by who he listens to? Oh, uh, who do you listen? To? Oh I, I like Francis Chan. Oh, okay, I know what he's all about. Who are you a fan of? Oh, Mark Driscoll or John Piper or Matt Chandler. Whatever, right? We all are are, are trying to find some point of reference and exalting messengers. Now, sometimes that's helpful. It does give us a point of reference, but that is not our identity. Our identity is in Christ. When he talks about the church in divisions, do you see divisions within the church? When he talks about um, sexual ethics, is that an issue in churches? Yes, it absolutely is. What about defining marriage and remarriage and divorce and how all that works out? Are those important things that we're struggling with, that we're dealing with today? It absolutely is. And this is what I want you to see, guys. Though the times have progressed and technology has advanced, the issues are still the same. Doesn't matter time, doesn't matter place. The issues of Corinth have not changed. They're the same issues that the church faces today. Paul could just as easily have written this letter to a church in Portland or L.A. or even the church right here in Medford, Oregon. So tonight, from 1 Corinthians and his pastoral heart towards the church and towards building itself, we're going to cherry-pick a couple of ideas, some things that I think are really important for us to grab, especially as we begin to chew on this issue of how should Christians respond to the issue of drugs and, and how they get used in society. So we're going to cherry pick a little. We're going to look at some biblical principles that guide Christians how to use on, to how to use their freedom. Specifically, though, we want to look at these principles as a guide for the issue of drug use itself. So it's my hope to give you this grid by which to make choices about how you manage freedom and how you manage conviction and to make choices about how drugs can be used for good or how they can also destroy an individual. So first off, I want to give you a little bit of historical analysis that will sort of lay a foundation for this discussion further. Okay, uh, before we dive into talking about this issue, I think it's helpful to lay some groundwork in understanding the world in which we live and the way that the Bible talks about it. There are basically two biblical doctrines that are particularly helpful in understanding the use of drugs as Christians. Okay, these two doctrines are, first of all, if you're taking notes, the doctrine of the fall, and second of all, the doctrine of common grace the doctrine of the fall, and the doctrine of common grace. These are biblical doctrines that you can find in just about any um, theology book that is sort of breaking down uh, different segments of Christian understanding. Okay? So if you want to pick up a good one, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's a fantastic one. It comes from a Reformed perspective, so that's important to know as you head into it but he does a great job of walking you through the effects of the fall and, and, and also um, how grace gets broken down, uh, from grace that saves to common grace. Now, these two doctrines lay a foundation for the conversation long before we begin to ask what a Christian is permitted to do and what they are not permitted to do. So let's start with the first one, the doctrine of the fall. The Bible opens with the story that God created everything good matter of fact after each one of the days of creation it concludes with this statement it was what good right everything that he made it was good okay and then adam and eve of course they come in on the sixth day and the bible says that god looked at all that he had made and he said oh it's it's good now after repeating that things are good for the first in the first chapter 7 times we see that sin enters into God's creation by the time we get to chapter 2 and chapter 3 the deceiver is on the scene and he is deceiving Adam and Eve he's lying to them Adam and Eve have been living in this garden this is a place that that there in the garden is all the provision that Adam and Eve need for life and for health. Everything that God made is good and in one part of the garden is actually a tree that gets called the tree of life. Now, I want you to think about this. This is prior to the fall. Right? Prior to when sin enters into the world, there is a tree that is for the health of adam and eve so i imagine adam he's there in the garden god's like tend the garden okay so he you know he grabs a rock and he starts digging and you know next thing you know he scuffs up his hand and he starts bleeding you go oh that can't happen it was before sin entered adam was a human right and he probably scuffed himself and was bleeding the Bible tells us that the tree of life that was there, that they could partake of that, and then in some way, Adam and Eve would receive life-giving or healing power from this tree. Matter of fact, that same tree appears in the garden at the end of time. And the Bible describes it in this way. It says that the, the, the tree bore 12 fruits in every season, right? And the, the leaves, who knows what that, the rest of that verse is? The leaves were for the what? Anybody know? The healing of the nations. There's some sort of medicinal property, I guess you could say, to this tree of life. Okay? And, and this is before the fall. And this is also after the redemption of the world. And I, I know that messes with our... I thought heaven didn't involve pain and suffering. No, we're talking about resurrection bodies and all kinds of things. There's some interesting dynamics that I think we have to think through. But be that as it may, here they are in the garden and there is this tree that somehow gives them life or helps them medically in some way. Okay? And this tree provides healing for them. Then the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve made a choice to betray God resulting in instantaneous death. Now, from the Targums in the Midrash, it appears that um, this this instantaneous death that would ta- take place in the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that that somehow affected them. And, and, and it seems to be connected to um, th- the glory of God resting upon them in a pretty amazing way. That, and that they were somehow... Clothed, if you will, or covered in God's glory. Now, this seems to be hinted at in the Psalms, but it's mostly described in extra biblical writings. So we can't, we can't anchor ourselves to that. But there is the possibility that they were they were covered in the Shekinah or the the glory of God there in the garden, and that when they sin. That sin affected them in such a way that the presence of God and the glory of God departed, and they looked at each other apart from that light, apart from that glory, apart from that sharing that they had with God. And now, all of a sudden, they felt naked for the first time in all of creation. And they felt shame. Felt exposed. Uh, My covering, it's gone. They tried to make their own, so they picked the scratchiest leaves in the garden, right? sewed them together and said, hey, look at me, I'm wearing poison oak. Super uncomfortable, that's the way man's coverings always end. And here in the garden, they are hiding from God. That same glory that they used to share in is now departed and, and they feel naked and they're now hiding behind a tree from the one they used to walk with in the cool of the day. And, and they're, they're somehow severed in relationship between them and the Lord. Matter of fact, some commentators believe that this glory that departed is the same glory that came to rest upon Moses on Mount Sinai. That it's the same glory that shrouded Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That it's the same glory that's being talked about in Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, when it says that God is clothed in light. And now, because that relationship has been severed, they are hiding. Well, God comes in and He brings judgment and grace. He deals with their sin and He cuts them off from their health care program. Right? They were able to have access to this tree, but now God is, He's like, man, if if you have access to this tree in this continued fallen state, you will live forever separated from me. Separated from my life. Separated from from me in some way. and, And I don't want that for you. And so... I'm going to allow decay, entropy, to take place, not only in you, but in everything that has been made, in all of creation. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 21 says that because of the sin of Adam and of Eve, that all of the creation was subjected unto futility or emptiness, not willingly, but in order that they might set their hope on the one who can redeem it all, right? So when you look around, you go, man, this place is so beautiful. It's so wonderful. I love the world that we live in. And, and then you, you stub your toe or you're, you, know, you, you find that, that somebody that you love comes down with some terrible disease or, or some death happens. We, we go, okay, maybe I don't want the world the way it is. I want something better. I want something permanent. I want something eternal. And it's in that state of brokenness that man is brought to the awareness of their need for a Redeemer, their need for a salvation. So now that God banished Adam and Eve and everything created is now in a state of decay, God also provides for them a promise. He says, okay, I, I know that sin has, has, has spoiled things, but there's coming a moment where I'm going to send my Redeemer. And my Redeemer is going to be born of Eve, which, by the way, Adam names his wife Eve. And the interpretation of her name is the mother of all living. Right? What was was the curse? The curse was, in the day that you eat it, you shall surely what? Die. Okay. So Adam makes really a faith claim in, in looking at Eve. And he says... You are the mother of all the living. He puts his hope in the promise of God. And he says, God said that I would send a deliverer through my wife, through Eve, and and that means that life is coming back. Life is going to happen again. We're going to be reconnected again. He's going to crush the head of the enemy. Life is coming. Now, naming his wife in faith, the mother of all the living, he puts his faith in the promise that she would have a descendant who would defeat Satan using his own weapons. That is that he will use death itself to redeem those who are under the sentence of death. The irony there is fantastic to realize that God is going to do this. Now, this is why this is important. Because the Bible is telling us that we are not whole, we're broken. It reminds us that the use of the tree of life predates the fall of man. And this means that the use of some sort of medicine for humans, the, the tree of life, existed before sin and is therefore not sinful in and of itself. It's not something that is necessary because of the fall, but in light of the fall, God's grace extends from the garden forward, revealing to mankind ways in which their health can be benefited. And they can continue in a life that is glorifying to God. In fact, the entire logic of God punting Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden is based on the fact that God doesn't want mankind to live physically in a fallen state for eternity by eating from the tree of life. It is the will of God for mankind to die. And until His return and the final redemption of the world, it is His will that we grow old, that we age, that our bodies fail, and that we die. I love this. This There's a great story of C.H. Spurgeon who was coming out of uh, the church and an elderly woman approached Spurgeon and said, I I, I know that it's the will of God. I know that it's his will that we all um, have to grow old and die, but why does he have to make it hurt so bad? (laughs) Spurgeon, in classic Spurgeon-like wisdom, said, Madam... I believe that God has designed life in such a way that the closer we get to the eternal, the less that we can hang on to that strength, which is temporary. In other words, the aging process, the, you know how Ecclesiastes talks about the, the grinders coming to a halt, right? The teeth, they, they fall out. <laughs> the peepers in the windows, your eyes, they grow dim. Right, you, you, You're like, man, I used to be able to see this far, but now I need these dollar store glasses. I have stuff everywhere so that you know I can read stuff. Um, it's God's will that that happens because it puts us in a position, the older we get, the closer we get to eternity, to not trust in those things that are temporary. We have to cling on to something that is eternal, that, that pushes us beyond the realm of this life, the here, the now. Now, this cycle of death is a witness to the fall of man and the need for a Savior to redeem us from the corruption of the world. Death and decay point us to the fact that we need a great physician. You guys track it with me? Okay, so here's what the doctrine of the fall teaches us. Hey, let's summarize this. The doctrine of the fall teaches us that God used medicine before the fall and that because of the fall, we are all subjected to decay, And we're not to be trusted with eternal life after the fall. Because in our fallen state, if we live on forever, we'll never know redemption. And fourthly, that God will use the effects of the fall to redeem the fallen. Now, this is doctrine one. The doctrine of the fall. Okay, doctrine two. Common grace. The doctrine of common grace. Now the doctrine of common grace teaches us that even though mankind has sinned against God and now lives under the effects of the fall, God graciously provides for the needs of people. A good example, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, it says this. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. In other words... God gives good things to people whether they deserve it or not. If you're righteous or unrighteous, doesn't matter. The sun comes up for both of you. If you're righteous or unrighteous, doesn't matter. Rain still falls. Crops are still watered. Food is still provided because God is gracious. And He's withholding His judgment, His final judgment, from the entire world and allowing the world opportunity, those that have been created, opportunity to be saved, to be redeemed, okay? Now, this list of common graces is, is, is a list of benefits that we get whether we're saved or not, okay? This is not a saving grace. This is a grace that causes us to be able to enjoy life and know, at least in some capacity, before life ends, the goodness of God in some way. So this is the capacity to enjoy beauty, The capacity to love and to be loved. The capacity to learn and gain knowledge or wisdom. The capacity for pleasure. And another gift of God's grace that people don't like to talk about. The capacity to experience pain and sorrow. Now Donald McKim, who's the editor for the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms, he defines it in this way. He says this, Also called general grace, God's universal non-saving grace in which blessings are given to humanity for physical sustenance, for pleasure, for learning, for beauty, etc., as expressions of God's goodness. It is particularly contrasted in Reformed theology with God's special or God's saving grace. This means that all the knowledge of the physical world is a precious gift from God in order that people might understand who He is and His goodness. That, my underst- that they might understand that he's a provider, that he cares for humanity, that it's not his desire that any should perish. When an, a- an astronomer discovers a new galaxy, or a-, a physicist uncovers a new molecule, or a biologist dis- discovers a new detail that helps them to map out DNA, or when a physician discovers a way to help the sick that everybody in the world is experiencing to some degree the goodness of God at work in the created world. This is common grace. Now, by God's grace, He doesn't keep this from them. He doesn't keep His infinite wisdom about the physical world from them because He is seeking to bless mankind in order that they might know His character and his nature. Okay. Track with me. I know I can see the evening is beginning to settle. All right. And so I'm going to pull the threads together. I know we have a lot of like thoughts that are out there. Like, how's this all connected? Okay. Ready? We're, we're going to talk about drug use. Here's the deal. Because of the fall, we understand that there is a need to care for one another. Because we are living under the fall, we know that there is a need to care for one another. Brokenness is a part of the common human experience. And God's care predates the fall and extends on after the fall. Predates the fall in the tree of life and extends after the fall in His care for His people by providing them with wisdom on how to fix what is broken, how to set a broken bone, how to get rid of a headache, how to care for somebody who's bleeding. This is all knowledge given by God. And it's a part of His common grace. People don't deserve it. We're all sinners. We live in a fallen world. But God, in demonstrating His goodness, is showing us that there is a way to move towards health and wholeness. Okay? So let me give you one example of how, in the scriptures, this directly correlates to the issue that we're discussing, the issue of drug use in the Christian worldview. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, verse 6, Solomon says this, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. In other words, God knows that in those days, that the, the medicine, if you will, that would help somebody who was dying in a painful way to pass through that time without extensive amounts of suffering was to give them alcohol to help numb the pain. He says, okay, this is a permissible use for a God-given thing, for something I've created in the world for the use of mankind. God knows that alcohol could be used medicinally to ease the pain of those who are dying or physically suffering. In an unbearable way. Now, yet, in the same passage, though, in Proverbs, there's a stiff warning that alcohol can negatively affect your judgment. It says, It's not for you, O Lemuel. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. In other words, it can affect your judgment. You be careful. Here we can see God encouraging the use of a substance for the relief of medical issues. And at the same time, we can see that He is limiting the use of that substance because of how it affects a person's ability to judge reality. We see the fall being tempered by the wisdom of God in that He says, mankind's sin nature can take over. so Be careful, it'll affect your judgment. And yet, the fall also being nurtured by God in that when somebody is suffering, you have the ability to compassionately ease their pain. You see both. So let's summarize this point and then get back to the original passage, the original topic. The doctrine of common grace teaches us this that advances in the sciences are a gift from God. Number two, that the proper use of medicines for those that are suffering is encouraged by God. He encourages people to doctor one another, if you will, to take care of, to lessen the pain of, to ease the discomfort of one another through medicines. And then thirdly, it also teaches us that the abuse of medicines is discouraged by God. That even though that's a common grace benefit, that there are limitations to its enjoyment. That there are limitations to its purposes for mankind. So now that we know, okay, drugs can be either good or bad. They can be toxic and poisonous to the heart and soul of a person, and they can be beneficial to people in society. We see that both are true congruently, we have to separate out now two issues in our present society. First of all, there's two categories of drug use. Armed with this framework, let's continue to look at the issue of how drugs are used in God's world and how Christian freedom or liberty intersects with this, with this reality. To do this, we've got to separate it into two categories. First of all, illegal drug use. And second of all, legal drug use. Now, illegal drug use is a no-brainer. That's an easy one. Okay, um, as it relates to illegal use, the Bible is definitive. It's explicit. It says this: if the government forbids it, it is forbidden. It's that simple. If it's illegal, it's not okay for Christians. So, you know, you're a Christian, and you're like, does God want me to do cocaine? No. He does not. Okay? And he's proven that by by giving wisdom to governing authorities to say this is harmful to society and to its people. I don't want this for you. And you should follow those laws. Romans 13 makes it clear that we are to be submitted to the government that we live under. Now when Paul penned that passage, one of the most hideous empires of the world was in power, Rome. And and if Paul told early Christians to honor Rome as their authority, we don't have an excuse in Medford, Oregon. Right? If he said, okay, yes, this empire over here, the one that's killing people left and right, that drags our brothers and sisters off, sews them up in animal skins, feeds them to lions, you should obey that government. And here in Medford, we're like, well, I don't like the way the government tells us to pay taxes. I'm sorry, that's a stupid argument. Submit to the government. Submit to the powers that be. I mean, Surely, if God could tell Christians in the Roman Empire to pay taxes and obey the laws, then we don't have any excuse here in Medford, Oregon, any excuse here in America. We're not free to enjoy what the government makes illegal, with few exceptions. Few exceptions might be when the government says, don't worship Jesus, then we have the freedom to disobey. When the government wants to do harm to somebody, like in Nazi Germany, when when um, Jews were being hidden because they were being annihilated and massacred, there is a solid biblical case for protecting those that are weaker than you against tyrannical governments. Rather than that, you should obey the laws. And whether you're born in South Korea, North Korea... The United States, Japan, USSR, it doesn't matter. If you're a believer in Jesus, you follow those governments and you honor God. So, illegal drug use. That's the easy one. Now, what about legal drug use? What about legal drug use? Let's ask the same question of legal drugs. Can a Christian use legal drugs? We answered the the first question, can a Christian use illegal drugs? The emphatic answer is what? No. (laughs) No, Sam. Absolutely not. What about legal drugs? Can a Christian use legal drugs? Let me give you the short answer. Ready? Maybe. Maybe. Now, before a Christian can use something that God made freely... That freedom has to pass the 1 Corinthians sniff test. We are guided in matters of liberty by the love of a protective father who seeks to shepherd our souls, who seeks to care for our well-being. And so he has set for us, he's established principles for us to live by that are incredibly, incredibly helpful. So yes, God made everything. But the question we're dealing with is, if God made everything, is a Christian free to enjoy everything God made? Now, when I was living in Cape Junction, some of the verses that, would, that people would throw around you know, to, to justify um, the use of marijuana was, was fantastic. All pot smokers know two, two verses in the Bible, right? The first one is, um, every herb-bearing seed shall be to them for food, Right? And I'm like, well, okay, well, poison oak bear seeds. You want to eat some of that? How about you put that in your pipe and smoke it? <laughs> right? How's that sound? How about some hemlock? How about that? Okay, so you, you can't use that logic to make a case for it's God's will that I smoke weed. Right? You can't. The other verse, thou shalt not judge. That's the other one that every pot smoker knows, right? Thou shalt not judge. But I'm like, read the rest of it. Or he goes on to say, hey, you know, look out for wolves, right? You have to make a judgment here somewhere. Some people are dangerous. You should look out for them. Well, so can Christians then freely enjoy something that God has made? God made everything as a Christian, free to enjoy everything that God made. Well, Paul gives us five principles that help guide us in 1 Corinthians. And this is going to help guide us through some complex waters to sort through. And And I think all of us in the last year with the legalization of marijuana and with being in contact with neighbors and friends and everything else that are now growing weed and you know, thinking about what it's going to do to our city or, and, and all this, we're all sort of grappling with, okay, so where is the line for us as believers? I'm, I, I want to help give you a grid. So here's, here's five principles. I want to give you, first of all, three scriptures that you need to know regarding this issue. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to there. 1 Corinthians six twelve. Paul says this. Oh wait just a second so you can turn there. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be what? Enslaved by anything. Okay. First scripture. Second scripture. Flip over to, to chapter 10. Verse 23 through 24. Just a couple of pages over. All things, he says, are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So all things may be lawful, but it might hurt my neighbor. That would put limitation on me as a believer. Third scripture, verse 31 of chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now notice here, notice. We are never once guided in the scriptures to ask, what does the government say I can do? That's not how Christians make decisions. Matter of fact, as we look at the government, doesn't the government allow lots of things that for Christians are forbidden? Doesn't it say, oh yeah, you you can do that. That's legal. But for us as believers, it's forbidden. Right? Things like divorce for any reason. Right? Where you just, oh, she burned the toast, so I don't really like her anymore. The government would say, oh, that's fine. You don't like her. Irreconcilable differences. But for the believer, God would say, no, you are bound to a covenant to love her whether she ever gets the toast right. Okay? Have her make eggs. (laughs) Have her do something different. Abandon the toast idea. Find a way to adapt. But you're bound to love her. This is the will of God for you. The government says it's okay to kill your unborn baby. The Bible says absolutely not. Life is a precious gift and it belongs to the Lord. The government says all kinds of things are okay that are forbidden for Christians. So we're going to ask kind of the same questions. We're not taught to ask the question, what does the government say I can do? Or what is the latest popular lifestyle or recreation choice to gain mass public approval? We are, however, taught through Paul's example to ask some specific questions regarding liberty that are really clarifying to us. And The first one is this. It may be lawful, but is it helpful? Let me ask it in the negative, okay? Same question, but in the negative. may be lawful, but is it harmful? Will it hurt you? Will it do damage to your mind, do damage to your body, do damage to your soul? Is it helpful? Is it harmful? Second principle that guides concerning Christian freedom. It may be lawful, But will it enslave or overpower me to the point where I'm I'm no longer in control of myself? Am I able to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit of self-control? Am I able to do that under the influence of this this drug? It may be lawful, but is it going to enslave me? Is it going to take away my self-control? Is it going to be addictive? Is it going to make me It's slave to where I live for that alone? Is that what's going to happen? If that's the case, then it's not okay for believers. Third thing, it may be lawful, but does it build up? Or does it edify? The idea here is is does it encourage your well being? When it talks about, the Bible talks about edifying, it's saying does this help your well being? Does it, does it bless your well being physically, spiritually, emotionally? Now, I know lots of people who would would love to make the argument with me. I hey, hate pot and you know my the, my prescription pills that I'm abusing and my you know whatever your you know sort of secret addiction is. Um, those things actually do help me. Really? Look at any society or any culture. Drive out to Cave Junction. Right? Tell me things are okay out there. You don't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to drive through Cave Junction or Takilma. if anybody knows where taquilma is, and go, man, some people really should not smoke weed. It's really, really bad for their brains. Um, I was a pothead... and I'll I'll tell you something you don't think better on pot you are not smarter everybody that I know of that's an intense pothead eventually sounds kind of the same you guys remember Bill and Ted's adventure from way back in the the night 80s? 80s gosh oh man (laughs) I'm not that old um You guys remember how Keanu Reeves talked? That was my crowd. And to us, we sounded cool. To the rest of the educated world, we sounded like we were greatly hindered in our ability to focus. So it may be lawful, but does it build up? Does it edify? Does it encourage my well being? Physically, spiritually, and emotionally? It may be lawful, but does it harm my neighbor in some way? Does it cause rage? You know, like people who are you know, convinced that, um, you know, doing steroids is going to help their athletic performance. But then they end up with roid rage, you know, and they cuss out their coach and walk off the field. And you're like, what was that all about? You don't have self control because you're under these the influence of these drugs that are not helping your well-being and they're actually doing harm to the relationships in your life, they're doing harm to your neighbor, they're doing harm to your team. How many families have we seen fall apart for because of alcoholism or because of prescription pills or because of you name it, right? Maybe lawful, but does it harm my neighbor? Does it harm my loved ones? Does it create poor decision-making and cause harm to the people around me? Fifthly, it may be lawful, but does it glorify God? Okay, this is this is the one for me. Again, I've had countless conversations with people who, who smoke weed, right? And uh, and some of them vehemently saying that they absolutely can glorify God, and I'm like, okay, so you're you're kicking it with Jesus, and you're in heaven, right? And you're like, hey Jesus, I brought I brought a surprise. I managed to, before I died, I stuffed my bong in my pocket. And you want to rip a bowl with me, Jesus? And he's going to be like totally cool with it. You can't tell me that there's not something that witnesses in your soul, in your heart, that this, does, this is not something that God wants us to enjoy. You cannot tell me that you would, not, that you would boldly sit there with the Lord Pass him the bong and say, yeah, he's still super holy and perfect even though he's stoned out of his gourd. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, does it? And yet people will argue, oh no, I can do it to the glory of God. I would say no. I don't think that you can. I I would argue the opposite. That you do it to the detriment of of your relationship with God. And though you might induce feelings of euphoria that make you feel like you're closer to God, they are manufactured. They're manufactured. It's not real. It's not the real you. It's not the truest part of you. It's not your real heart. It's a manufactured psychosis induced by THC. It's actually limiting your brain physiologically. And making you function less properly. It puts you in a position to where you are not more united with God, the real you. You are more separated from the real you. You do not stand in reality in God's world. You stand outside of reality in God's world. And you're not interacting with the world that he made the way that he made it. It may be lawful, but does it glorify God? By the way, if you have questions, make sure that you're texting those in uh, to the number that, that's on the screen there. want to make sure that as we have our Q&A, you have an opportunity to, to voice any questions or concerns you might have. Here's, here's the overall thing as we kind of wrap this up. There is a God-given purpose for the things that God has made in this world. Some of the purposes are for the benefit of mankind. And when created things serve the purposes to which God created them, there is no sin. But when created things become an escape from God's world, or cause a person to be enslaved, or become an escape from things that God wants us to face with Him, To bring our hearts before Him. And we're we're numbing the pain of life. With prescription meds. Or marijuana. Or designer drugs. Or whatever that is. And we're masking the reality of life. We are doing ourselves harm. We are not living in harmony with God. We're fighting against His will for us. One final note on Paul. No one in the early church fought harder for the freedom of Christ's followers than the Apostle Paul. Nobody did. I mean, he withstood withstood the Jews to their faces, right? Claiming, hey, you can't put them under the yoke of bondage again. Don't do that. The book of Galatians is written to Christians to say, stand for freedom. Stand for it. Don't let anybody rob you of the freedoms that you have as believers in Christ, as followers of Christ. Don't let anybody put some trip on you, Okay? And in writing to the Galatian churches, he made two statements that I think are equally true for us today. The first statement is this, ready? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, don't get caught up in legalism that seeks to be justified before God by what we do or do not do. Legalism is a system of thought or belief that says I, God loves me and accepts me and is okay with me because I do this or I don't do that. I smoke pot or don't smoke pot. I, you see what I'm saying? So we build this. He said, don't get caught up in that. That's slavery. Don't go back there. But then he says something else, just a few verses down from there that I think is equally true. Same passage. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, it says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. Second thing he says there to the Galatians regarding freedom, he says, don't let freedom lead you into a lifestyle dominated by the flesh and And it's desire for sin. Don't get snared under the guise of freedom into a lifestyle where you are in bondage to sin. Where your flesh is being nurtured and your spirit is dwindling and you are suffocating. Don't be ensnared. Don't use freedom to such a degree or in such a way that it destroys who you are because it's become an excuse for your flesh. Now this goes for people who are drinkers. This goes for people who have to take prescription meds because of constant pain. It goes for people who are wondering, what should I do in the face of all my friends that now smoke weed because it's legal? This goes for every believer who puts their faith in Jesus. Yes, Christ died to set you free and it's for freedom's sake. He wants you to be free. Now don't use that freedom to go back to a life of slavery. Amen? I'd like to open it up now. If you've, if you've got questions, if there's any that have come in today, I'd love to um, answer those directly. See what we've got. Could you clarify where the idea of the tree of life is being used as medicine pre-fall came from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, When we see that the tree of life is there for them, um, and that when it's taken away, they lose life. You're following my logic? If they don't have it to sustain life, they die. That's the idea. So it's being used to promote health in some way, and that's sort of the logic of the scriptures. And I think we see that again um, in the book of Revelation where it says that even though this is after the resurrection, this is after new bodies, new heaven, new earth, the trees, leaves are for what? The healing of the nations. So that's kind of where that logic comes from. Is there another one? Doesn't the Proverbs passage that warns Lemuel mean that alcohol isn't for kings? Mean that those in positions of leadership or authority can never touch alcohol? Ooh, that's a good question. So um, I, I think to carry that forward, in, in order to make that statement, I think you'd have to um, make some claims about Jesus that are really damaging to our understanding of who Christ is. So let's take example, um, John chapter 2, where he supplies wine for people who are pretty much partied out, right? They drank everything that was available to them. There's maybe one too many rednecks at this wedding, Right? They've been hanging out in the beer garden and or the wine garden, and now all the wine is gone. And Jesus comes on the scene and he goes, "Hey, um, let's let's kick this party off the right way." And he makes seventy gallons of wine for them. We're not talking like everybody gets a glass. Seventy gallons—that's significant, right? Then he gathers his disciples in an upper room and he says to them, "Oh, with." with longing, I have longed to eat this meal with you and to drink this cup. And he says, as a matter of fact, from this moment forward, because I'm going to the cross the next day, from this moment forward, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you new in the kingdom of God. So we would have to say then that Jesus was not a good king. Wouldn't we? If we say that that means that kings cannot drink wine at all. The real issue there in that passage, the emphasis in that passage, Seems to be centered on not letting your judgment be perverted while you're judging God's people. That seems to be the issue. Yeah. Yeah. My old Baptist background would say, therefore, if we want to be like Christ, who says, I will not drink of this again into the kingdom when sin and its temptations to drunk and remove, then we too should not take of this time. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent question, excellent question. I would say Jesus took that same cup and he commanded them, do this often in remembrance of me. Now remember, um, the ability to make wine not alcoholic didn't occur until the late 1800s. A Methodist minister by the last name of Welch created a way to pasteurize (laughs) grape juice to make it not alcoholic any longer. Because alcoholism was such a cultural issue at the time, but prior to that the church always enjoyed wine matter of fact John calvin Martin Luther big big names throughout church history they were paid partially in wine because uh, as a part of their salary they had to entertain people from the church and so they wanted to make sure hey you've got to have wine to have people over and um, and so I think you know it would be poor logic to say then that um, because Jesus isn't drinking wine, neither should the church. Okay, but he commanded the church to drink wine. What do I do with that? You know what I mean? He's like, do this often in remembrance of me. And there was no grape juice available. Okay? So uh, I'm not sure how else to, to navigate that. Other questions? Yeah, Mike. Absolutely. Well, I, I, again, I disagree with that, Mike. No, no I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Please know I'm joking. Okay. Uh, when is Jeremy going to grow his beard back? Well, <laughs> you're going to have to talk to my wife about that one. Uh, I think beer in mod- moderation is uh, to be permissible but pot is too far. That seems hard to defend. It does seem a little hard to defend, and I've actually spent a great deal of time thinking through this, and I I wanna help you with the logic there. First of all, beer or alcohol is really easy to quantify in the way that it affects your body, based on your weight, and based on how much you consume. Um, There's a level at which we know your self-control is going to be affected, your motor skills are going to be affected. And the, the, the law has even, dr- uh, has even drawn that line in the sand, uh, especially as it relates to um, driving privileges and things like that, okay? With marijuana, that's not true. Matter of fact, two people that have different body chemistry, one guy can smoke the same stuff and just be mellow and eat a bag of Cheetos. And the other guy might have hallucinations and totally wig out and trip out. Some of that is based on body chemistry, genetics, personal history. Um, I, I can tell you this. My, my brother-in-law, who I love dearly, um, he was, was predisposed to schizophrenia. And one of the things that people don't know about mar- marijuana is if you have the genetic markers for schizophrenia, uh, pot will kick that into full swing. And so one, one time while he was smoking weed, Um, He went absolutely schizophrenic. We were down in California visiting at that time. He stole my father-in-law's truck, wrecked it, crashed, and did a bunch of stuff. He just had lost his mind. And um, so I would say it's not a one-to-one comparison. We're talking about the differing effects of how it affects a a person's psyche, their well-being, and their brain. And and as the legalization movement has really gained steam, we're getting more reliable data. And let me tell you, the, the reliable data is awful. The, the prognosis, I mean, you can look at the LA Times, you can look at, and to be fair, there are lots of unofficial studies that have been done, right, that say, oh, there's lots of benefits to marijuana. It's the wonder drug, you can rub it on your face and you'll look younger and you can, you know, whatever. But um, when we look at the real clinical trials that have been done, the real studies that we have been done, there's one that just came out last week that talks about how it affects the brain and the white matter in the brain, which is the matter that enables neural connections between both lobes of the brain. Okay? And it's absolutely detrimental. Uh, When you inhale marijuana smoke, you're you're five times, you're inhaling five times the carcinogens that cause cancer as as a regular tobacco cigarette. Think about the dynamics of this. We live in a state that has outlawed smoking in bars and public places and everything else, and has permitted... The smoking of another substance that's five times as hazardous as tobacco. These are, anybody can get on their phone right now and Google the stuff and you can get all the information you want. The the studies are revealing that it's actually terrible for your physical well-being. It's terrible for your mental well-being. It's terrible for your spiritual well-being because it initiates a high that separates your ability to be in touch with God's world as he's made it and puts you in a state where you are outside of reality. You're in a sort of supra-reality. And that's not how God intends for us to live. Um, so I think that there are some major distinctions, and I don't think it's all that hard to defend. We just have to think clearly about it. Another question. How do we handle family and friends who repeatedly return to the drug lifestyle? Oh, man. That one is a heartbreaker, isn't it? I mean, How many of you guys have family or friends that are affected by regular drug use? Let me see your hands. Yeah. Um, there's virtually no one is untouched by that. I would say th- there's several things that, that are super important. First of all, I think um, prayer is, is right off the bat You need to pray that God will break them. Because until you come to a place of brokenness and you are you realize you're absolutely powerless against something, you won't even begin to engage in the battle. Okay, you have to recognize sort of the the you know um, the steps to to be able to, to, to find freedom. The first one is admitting what? That you have a problem, right? You have to understand that. And that you're powerless against that problem that you need help. Um, so that's that's the first thing. I, th- I think prayer that true brokenness would happen. I think second of all, um, there are really fantastic treatment programs. I actually went through two of them in my high school um, days required by the state. And um, and I found a tremendous amount of community in some of those places. I would say, be careful though about some of the treatment programs because a lot of times the people who attend are their because they're required to be, and they're just looking for loopholes, right? You know, they'll they have to pee in a cup, and so they'll bring somebody else's pee with them, and you know, they're they're just playing a game. But there are pe- people, and there are places where people genuinely are fighting for sobriety, and they're genuinely fighting. And those are the kind of places we want to get people plugged in. I would say um, another thing is that you you have to draw boundaries for yourself, and you you have to say. I'm willing to love you, but I won't make excuses for you. I'm willing to love you, but I won't enable you. I'm willing to love you enough that I'm willing to confront you when I think you're making stupid choices and you're ruining your life. And that's not a con- in a condemning way. It's because I love you that I'm willing to confront you in this things. So I think those are kind of three, you know, uh, shotgun approaches to uh, how to deal with that. We're uh, coming to a close on our time here. If you have further questions, I'd love to kind of engage with some of those questions as we um, as we close out the night. But Let's close with just a prayer. Father, uh, we live in a world that has fallen. And, and I think because of that pain, lots of people are groping uh, in the dark to, to try and find some sort of comfort or alleviation uh, for their guilt or for shame or or just a way to numb the pain of living in a fallen world. And and God, I think every single one of us can empathize with that. But Lord, I pray that we would offer them the true remedy. The the remedy of the one who through death defeated death and gave us victory over sin. Who took away our shame. Who cleansed us and purged us and made us clean that we would no longer live under a cloud of guilt. God, I pray that we would bring that remedy to the world. I pray that we would have a heart for those around us who are caught up in the drug culture or lifestyle. Uh, I pray that we would have love and compassion and empathy for the people around us who are our neighbors and friends and family who are pot growers, that we would make pot the ultimate issue, that we would make sin and the cross the ultimate issue, what we do with Jesus, the ultimate issue. Father, I pray that you would help us to think clearly about this so we don't get caught up in the philosophies that the world throws at us, especially our young people who are being bombarded with lies that say, oh, this is really not that bad. And, you know, um, and all their friends that are, that are caught up and, and smoking weed and whatever else and, and they seem to be fine right now. God, give them perspective beyond their years. Give them wisdom grounded in your word. Give them a heart to follow you and not to get caught up in the sins that can entangle and ensnare us. And I just thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that you guide us with and I pray uh, for continued growth in this area as as we sharpen this thought process. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful night.